0: Welcome to another episode of Surgeon's Lives. I'm your host, John Monson. Today's guest is Dr. Sonia Ramamurthy, who is a professor of surgery at the University of California in San Diego, where she has spent most of her faculty career. She is also one of the most prominent leaders in the American Society of Colon and Rectal Surgery, um, and one of the best known colorectal surgeons both uh, nationally and internationally. She has managed to navigate um, a career very successfully, both professionally, as well as balancing um, family life, uh, along with her uh, husband, who's also a physician. So her experiences of doing this are going to be very interesting uh, to hear today. So without further ado, um, let's uh, join uh, the conversation with uh, Sonia Ramamurthy. Good Sonia. How are you?
1: Good. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm glad to see that you're still gainfully employed.
1: (laughs) Unfortunately, and taking call.
0: Yes, indeed. Well, thanks very much for uh, uh, taking the time today to uh, join the the millions and millions of viewers that uh, we will uh, no doubt have for this.
1: um, I love the background with the cars. That's amazing. (laughs) Get some Uh, junk out.
0: yes all, all of the embarrassing stuff you can move uh, out of the way so this um uh this venture is um going to talk to and is talking to a series of uh, surgeons from around the world um, not just the US but uh, um Europe and Australia and uh, uh and uh, the UK and Ireland etc and it's called surgeons lives because although um we will of course uh, talk about some aspects of professional life um uh, as much as anything else i'm interested to talk to people about what else makes up their uh, their being if you like uh, because it's there's plenty of opportunity to read people's cvs etc um
1: yeah. well good for you that's awesome and thank you what an honor <laughs> I'm uh, I'm sure I belong in the international, you know, international group of surgeons. But hey, no, we're
0: very. uh, I'm delighted to have you here. So, what I normally ask people to do, and I will ask you to do, is just to set the scene by uh, giving us a brief story um, that starts with the words uh, "I was born in."
1: Okay, I was born in Boston, Massachusetts. And my parents were immigrants from India. They both came over when they were fairly young. My dad came over when he was 16 on a boat um, and my mom came over when she was 18. Uh, So they spent most of their lives in this country. Yeah, they were in Boston, having traveled from the West Coast. um, Both had gotten, they'd gotten married uh, in the 50s. Um, One is Hindu, one is Muslim. So they got married in a Lutheran ceremony, which (laughs) made for a really interesting upbringing. Neither family was really present because they weren't excited about uh, the choice, Uh, but they both did well for themselves. You know, they worked hard, classic immigrant story. And and my dad was at Harvard. My mom was at Tufts pursuing um, a biochemistry degree and had my brother. And then they had me. And we lived in Boston for about a year or two um, before my dad had gotten his first job in Texas. And so I lived in Texas until about kindergarten, um, and then he—he um, he was an engineer. He got an engineering uh, professorship at Berkeley, and that's pretty much where I grew up in the Bay Area. Then for the for the remainder of my life, I am um, the middle child. I have an older brother who uh, does a lot of kind of startup tech, smart person stuff, and then my younger sister who is more working for nonprofits. Um, more like a person that is in the in the field of development, getting philanthropic support for nonprofits.
0: You went back then east uh, to Boston again.
1: I did. Yeah. So I finished my undergraduate degree at Berkeley. And then uh, for a while, wasn't sure about medical school. I went to culinary school for about a year and um, that kind of being out there in the real world in a restaurant where, you know, you see every walk of life really kind <laughs> can, of, can, at the same time I had a job at a biotech company, but, but all of that really convinced me um, one, I didn't, I wasn't so interested in the science as much as I was in the interested in the application of all that scientific knowledge towards human disease. So that, that made medical school more, made more sense to me. And that I, I just did not want to work in a crazy restaurant um, in the back in the kitchen where people were screaming and yelling and throwing things. But as it turns out, I decided to go into surgery. So medical school was a lot of fun <laughs> in Boston. And I yeah. found um, I found surgery there, which uh, uh, surgery
0: is I, a bit like the restaurant without good food.
1: <laughs> and, and a lot of well, the swear words are there too, I guess, but not in so many different languages. But um, yeah, it, it was—it's a fast-paced environment. I—I I think I thrive in that. I enjoy that. I definitely liked the people, um, and then came to back to California for general surgery at UCSD. Uh, after five years of that, fell in love with um, the practice of uh, Bard Cosman, who was the only colorectal surgeon at UCSD at the time, and so applied to colorectal. and went to WashU in St. Louis um, finished there. That was phenomenal. That's kind of where I had the decision to go into academics. I'm not sure I was convinced about that until I hit WashU, worked with Ira Codner and Jim Fleshman, and then, uh, took my first job at UCSF, was there for a few years, worked with Julio Garcia Aguilar and Mika Varma, uh, and then came back to UCSD. And that's where I've been since 2004.
0: So when you, um, uh, I mean, you, so you weren't, uh, um, Full on in terms of doing surgery from the very outset you know before you ever went to college or medical school did it uh, you know what what uh, tipped you towards the surgery was it just your medical student experiences or
1: I you know when I was in high school my uncle had a heart attack and I was 16 and my mom uh, wanted me to fly with her to go see him in LA We were in the Bay Area so we flew out there. And you know, amongst he was pretty sick. Um, you know, he was intubated in the ICU. And um, I I remember being in that moment, and I can even remember it today, where the the lights and the doctors and the chaos and the unrest and the and the patient there being my uncle, um, and seeing everyone around me crying and so upset. But I I there was a certain amount of comfort in that zone I don't know what it was it felt like a home I I was something felt right about that environment and that was at the time I don't think I realized I wanted to be a doctor but looking back on it I can absolutely identify that moment standing there looking at my uncle and knowing and feeling just something right something like that's where I belonged
0: when you were I mean that sounds like the uh the archetypal example for the personal statement doesn't it i mean when you were when you were applying for residency was was that story in the personal statement
1: no no I, it just didn't it didn't connect with me yeah. i i in my personal statement it was more about i've done all these other things and i've tried to go all these other routes of being a chef or or being in in <laughs> biotech and as a scientist and none of those things resonated with me as much as um, being with people, treating human disease, um, and applying some of that science to um, patients.
0: And uh, I, I'm guessing throughout, you know, you've extraordinarily successful career in your uh, uh, to date and uh, more to come, no doubt, but I'm guessing you had mentors along the way. Many. So, who were they?
1: You know, it's interesting. I I have, I think a lot of mentors for a lot of different things in life, probably like most of us, you know, personal life decisions and then professional life decisions. I would say one of my first recognizable mentors uh, was a gyne-oncologist during my general surgery training. Uh, I, I was scrubbed scrubbed a couple times with her and uh, we were talking a lot about what I wanted to do. And she was just making chit chat with me while we we're doing some pelvic extent, who knows what I was doing with there with my attending and whatnot. But, but um, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And, and she just somehow, you know, that chemistry was there and she helped me crystallize things even in those five, 10 minute interactions. And then whenever I had a chance to sort of pick her brain, I would about things. One of the most critical decisions she helped me make was I, I had just gotten married to my husband uh, in residency, and I had applied to fellowship, and um, was trying to decide between, you know, Wash you and uh, at least leaving California, and yeah. staying a- at a program in California, and, you know, she really said, gosh, you got to go to the best place you can get into, it's one year, your husband will be fine, your marriage will be fine, but don't let that, you know, impact your decision to get the best possible education you can get in your fellowship, so, Followed her advice, and that was probably you know some of the best decision I you know one of the best decisions I made. So in you, my life.
0: you did the the twelve month uh, long distance relationship thing.
1: Well, and then he he was he became faculty at UCSD in cardiology, so it turned into three years. So uh, a year at WashU, and then I took a job at UCSF while of he course, stayed at UC yeah. San Diego, and um, so we were part about three years.
0: So were you uh, intentional or just serendipitous about your choice of mentors?
1: Both, I would say. Later in life, I was more intentional. I I know I I realized the value of a mentor and a sponsor. And so then I sought out those people whose careers I admired um, and would, you know, call them and pick them up and you know some of it is it's about those people who reciprocate so not every person I picked up the phone and called uh, reciprocated with a desire to sort of help me with my decision making but for the most part um, I was very lucky to come across some some really awesome men and women who um were there for me. Uh, Marshall Orloff was one of my professors when I was a residency, you know, tough guy, you know, icon in American surgery, but he gave me advice about getting a nanny, (laughs) like all the little things like, you know, that, that someone just needs to kind of push you over to make some of these decisions, get a living, do this. Um, My chair at the time, Babs Musa, another tough guy, but gave me lots of advice about picking a partner in life and, you know, making decisions and how you make, you know, clinical judgments and how you deal with difficult patients. And that sort of bled into how to make difficult decisions in life in general. So I, I really benefited um, from lots of different men and women, um, not always in surgery, uh, many of them outside of the field.
0: But You know, Bob's Musa was a co-editor of a large textbook of surgery, Musa Giles, and Kusheri. Um, Alf Kusheri, of course, was a professor, a chair in Dundee, and Jeff Giles I worked for in Leeds. And uh, he uh, his son was a swimmer, so he used to go in the mornings at uh, 4.30 in the morning to the swimming pool uh, <laughs> to bring his kid there. And his, his secretary in the office used to complain that... Uh, Jeff would do his dictation in this in the swimming pool, and all she could hear was the splashing, splashing. of water. <laughs> she couldn't actually hear anything. And then, you know, 20 years later, when I was in Rochester, um Marshall's son, Mark, was there. Um, wow. who uh, you know, I knew I knew Marshall from when he was uh still working in and, and, and UCSD, but I used to say to Mark, and I still say to Mark, you know, I'm not really convinced he's genetically related to Marshall, because, you know, he is the gentlest of souls that you could ever imagine. <laughs>
1: My God. Well, well, Dr. Orloff definitely had a soft side and, you know, he's just one of those people that demanded you work hard as a resident and you be accountable. And, you know, those were the days. It was a different time we did things differently, but I learned a lot from my experience and very much enjoyed those moments where I had them to myself as a chief resident around and, and learn, you know, that's when they sort of kind of open up and, and tell you all kinds of little, um, gems of knowledge they have to share with you from their years and their perspective and it was it was amazing
0: and he was uh, definitely a guy who walked the walk um you know anybody who's putting himself on 24 7 for a randomized trial of of uh, distal spleen renal shunt for active variceal bleeding <laughs> that is and he commitment. actually
1: came in oh yeah over, those cases were like the most amazing anatomy you would ever see i mean incredible stuff incredible stuff to operate on same thing with babs musa all the pancreatic um cases and challenging things that we did uh same thing with him he would he would come in he would do this amazing stuff. I mean, technically, just really amazing, amazing surgeon, and um, learned a lot from him. Alfred Cushiere was our graduation speaker, uh, and and I remember him calling us Musa Vintage '90, whatever we were, <laughs> 1999, 90, 2001, whatever we were. Um, and it was it was God. I mean, those were the greats, right? It was amazing.
0: Yeah, and Alf is uh, still working. Um, uh, not clinically, right. um but he's teaching. he's in Italy. He actually um sent me uh, some sort of communication WhatsApp or something like that maybe three weeks That's- ago. <laughs> um bizarre um such an extraordinary guy actually
1: brilliant right <laughs> um,
0: so and then uh, Obviously, great success in the being a colorectal surgeon, and um, but also in the world of society politics. Um, so, what sent you down that line? Did you is it something that you just fell into, or you somebody said you got to do this, or or what?
1: Definitely, uh, Dr. Fleshman, Dr. Codner, Dr. Birnbaum all said it, you know, you're you're joining ASCARS, you got to be a part of this. This is what you're going to do. And you're going to be on the awards committee. <laughs> that's where you're going to get started. <laughs> um, so that's what I did, right? I mean, you just kind of did the, you know, in those days, you kind of did what your boss told you to do. And I did that. And of course, I wanted to join my own society and be a part of it learn more and connect with my co-fellows. I absolutely loved that course during fellowship, something I think really good that our colorectal society does. You kind of bond your colleagues very early on. So it was, it was always um, in my mind to be a part of this society as a member. I never imagined kind of growing in the society like I have. I think a lot of that just came from having, An interest in certain things and wanting to see them happen in the society. So I wanted to help Peter Marcello build the new tech committee. So went down that path because at that time I was, you know, really dabbling in robotics. And so um, worked with him on that. We created the new tech symposium. And then the next thing was, you know, we need an IBD committee. We need, you know, we need um, surgical leadership. So a lot of the stuff just came from my desire to build something, Um, not expecting anything in return, but but I was really lucky. I had some good sponsors, I think, in a society um, who gave me opportunities to grow and and um, take on more leadership roles.
0: And, you know, you're uh, within touching distance of the very top of the tree now. Um, and, um, you know, did, it, did, did that ever factor in the latter, you know, in the latter parts of uh, of that rise? You know, you're con- moving along, sitting on committees, contributing one thing or another, people tap you on the shoulder and et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, you know, there, there must have come a point where you think, you know it's possible i might actually be the king of the hill here or whatever you know whatever the phrase is um is that something that you thought well you know if it happens it happens or maybe i should focus on this or whatever i mean people are different in how they approach that yeah. aren't they uh,
1: it wasn't necessarily a goal and um, it was uh it was a surprise. I didn't think the world was ready for an Indian woman to kind of be (laughs) at that level. I I just didn't. So I never imagined myself there. And it really goes to sort of say that you need to see people like you doing these things for you to imagine yourself doing them. So I never really imagined myself doing that. I have not, not had that ambition. But as I kind of moved along in this society from member to treasurer, there was always this goal to accomplish something at that level and get that done which I think just kind of moved me to the next level and then I saw oh hey if I'm going to do this then I want to make you know I want to have this kind of impact and so as I've moved along I've thought a lot about um, what impact I want to have at each level and I'm grateful that that um, I've come as far as I have I, I honestly didn't plan it out that way.
0: So it's a, it's interesting you describe it like that because one of the questions I was going to ask you was um, having reached whatever stage of your career you're at. And um, you know, do you have pearls of wisdom uh, advice wisdom that you give people that say, oh, Dr. Ramamurthy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, you know, w- what is your what's your elevator speech to young folks wanting to pursue a, a, a career in surgery?
1: it's hard work i think a lot of things are hard work i you know when i finished college my roommates one you know went into business goldman sachs the whole nine yards the other one became an attorney and um, you know worked for the head of the head attorney for bank of america so i watched these other women um work almost, you know, just about as hard as I did to get where they were. So I I think no matter what you do, you're going to work hard if you have these aspirations to, to take on these um, major responsibilities in life. Um, And so hard work is, you know, there is no other way to do it. (laughs) I think there's no, there's no sidestepping hard work, right? It's always, there's no elevator people will say to success. It's always, you got to take the stairs. And so if I were to tell people that I I do tell them that surgery is great. I absolutely love it. And you have to love it because it'll, it'll be hard and it'll be hard to be successful at it and people's lives depend on you. And there's a lot of stress there. And, and, if that's something that still keeps you in the game, then do it, right? Because 55 years late, you know, here I am 55 and I absolutely enjoy it. And so does Alfred Cusciari and so do you. And it's maybe not every single thing you enjoy, but sure. you still enjoy being a surgeon. I enjoy being a surgeon. I still ask my kids, does anybody want to be a surgeon? <laughs> there.
0: And, and what do they say?
1: Uh, you know, early on, they were like, no way, because they thought I I spent too much time at work, not enough time at home with them doing the things that they wanted me to do as a mom. But now there's been definitely a a pivot there where all of them are now considering medicine on some level. Um, and maybe not necessarily, I have a middle one that maybe thinks surgery, um, an older one that you know, maybe things more neurosciences, but, but in the beginning, you know, two doctors, kids originally were like, no way, not medicine. They've now kind of turned it around. And, and I had always hoped, and this was advice I got from a mentor was look, you know, early on, your kids may not fully understand where you're going, what you're doing, but, but talk to them about it and show them your papers that have your name on it and take them to conferences so they can see you giving a talk and share with them your success. So they really can appreciate what you're doing and why you're gone and feel a part of it which was really great advice for me and made a big difference i started bringing some of my kids one of my kids to the conferences and stuff and they'd sit in the back and you know they they felt the pride and i think that's important so they understood and now they, they, uh, they've all changed
0: did they critique you
1: sometimes yeah <laughs> <laughs> sometimes daughters can be harsh yeah
0: that's a that's a mother-daughter thing you know
1: (laughs) it's okay it's okay you know i mean sometimes that's the that's the honest people that you'll never you know they unfiltered unfiltered opinions which is good
0: exactly um so i you know when i was doing my extensive labyrinthine research for this conversation
1: which probably uh, lasted all of two minutes i'm sure i have too much to look into
0: excuse me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I watched um uh I, I watched the YouTube video of uh from I think 2017 of the uh, gentleman who had his robotic uh, sigmoid co- you know that story about the sigmoid colectomy and the <laughs> the man who uh, knew way too much about his own body for <laughs> he sure did he sure did um so I mean, I you know, when I watched it, I thought, okay, I'm I'm, I'm oscillating between thinking, you know, I, it's good to have somebody who's engaged and actually this guy is crazy and it's actually quite helpful, but I really would rather somebody else looked after him, et cetera, et cetera. But there's no doubt that, um, uh, you know, it's just the tip of the iceberg, that stuff, um, for sure. Um, and um, so where um where do you, where do you think you'll be uh, ten years from now? you'll be sixty five, as you say, and contemplating what you're gonna do with your life. And um, you know, um, I'll ask you in a minute what's changed in your career for better and worse, but where do you think you're go- we will all be in terms of do you think that, that uh, digital uh, connectivity is gonna be the norm?
1: I think some aspects of it will be, yes. You know, I think the the ability to provide better access through digital platforms uh, will for sure get better uh, and be the right thing to do, right? If access is a problem in this country, that um, is a solution to access. It's not the solution to all medical care but it is a solution to some medical care. And uh, as we think about an aging population uh, and how to take care of those patients and how to take care of them at home um, and how to apply a preventative medicine, uh, you know, sort of um, techniques to their care, I, I think that's where the digital that's where the digital age is going to make a big difference, right? My mom has bad Parkinson's. She's 88. It is a, a lot of work to get her to the doctor's office. Yeah. So as a family member, I'm super grateful for the ability to have telehealth and to converse with her doctors. I'm even more grateful for the services that can come to the house, the physical therapy, the traveling nurse, the, you know, whatever it is that can come in the house and help her and keep her strong. Um, but there are times she still needs to go to the hospital um, and, and, as much as we can try to keep her at home, that's our goal, and I got to imagine that's most patients' goals. I mean, patients' families' goals. So I, I think the way that we're going to be able to do that is is through better technology.
0: Yeah, yeah and, and it is. I mean, it's true. I mean, you lose something with it as well because you know, there's a lot of people go and go to their primary care doctor who never lays a hand on them. It's just it tests and right. one thing or another. But on the other hand. If, if you can talk to your doctor instead of driving two hours, that's got to be a good thing. I mean, but
1: it is frustrating, John. I mean, I, I do get it because we're in one of those specialties where people need to come in the clinic, right? And I have found that I'm getting bombarded with a lot more primary care requests in my clinic because I'm the first doctor they're actually seeing yeah. in person, you know, in six months, right? And so I'm noticing the edema on the lower extremities and <laughs> I'm picking up all this stuff and it's like, oh my God, you know, there's a lot of work here.
0: So uh, uh, an old friend of mine in England once said to me, you know, surgeons are better grandparents than they are parents, um, which, uh, you know, is, I thought was an interesting observation and uh, something, uh, you know, I know I uh, did badly on uh, work-life balance and uh, and some people are better than that. How would you grade yourself on uh would you give yourself uh, what grade would you give yourself in your work life balance that you have achieved over your career?
1: I'll take an A. I work hard at that. Yeah. I probably work hard at that more than anything. Yeah. Um, I, and it's been in a, a lot of personal sacrifice at times and, and what, or, or professional sacrifice, depending on how you look at it, things that yeah. I had kind to of give up that I thought I, you know would have helped me get to where I wanted to go or be what I wanted to be professionally, but had to give those things up. But I, I struggle, I think, like most people, men and women, I see my, my male fact, it's not just a female surgeon thing. I think we all struggle to be part of, um, present in our children and our spouses' lives and our friends' lives. And it's something you have to learn along the way. You know, how do you set those guardrails up? How do you yeah. protect yourself and protect them? Um, and it takes time. That, that's probably, you know, along with my surgical skills getting better as I grew, so did my ability to manage my life properly so that I uh, was comfortable with the balance that I had and that I felt like my family and my kids were getting the care that they needed. Um, and that it also allowed me to pursue um, professionally the, you know, the passion that I had for different things.
0: yeah, its and and it it comes, <clears throat> excuse me, it comes to people with greater or lesser degrees of difficulty um, at different stages uh, of lives. I mean, some people um, you know are not, you know, they achieve that balance from the very outset. I, I one of our my conversations, I chatted to a head and neck surgeon um, who a factor in choosing head and neck as a specialty was that he did not wish to be, um, you know, running around like a headless chicken as an abdominal (laughs) surgeon, which he saw in his, and so he thought, you know, head and neck is a little more um, controllable uh, as a career. And the second thing that, uh, you know, uh, in the the conversations that I've done in this podcast is you know this conversation would not have happened 20 years ago because yeah. a discussion of such such issues you know was perceived as a mark of weakness yeah. um, and you know not something that you want to reveal you know the only thing that would ever be acknowledged would be perhaps playing golf on a friday afternoon that was a sort of appropriately manly right. thing right. to do you or know?
1: or if it's something your kids did something amazing then it would be something for you to sort of you know
0: yeah, like an ornament
1: but I or went a, into surgery even right but <laughs> but it wasn't something you talked about and you know i think we all i'm not an a student every day in my life sure. you know yeah. sometimes i absolutely fail my family or i absolutely fail at work but but overall i i think the one thing that over the years you learn is to forgive yourself, right? You can only do so much and be so many places and be so many things to so many people.
0: So, um, uh, seeing as you've uh, almost given me a segue into this, I'm gonna uh, take my life into my hands um, <laughs> and ask you about the issues of um, diversity, women in surgery, uh, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Um, I say take my life into my hands because it's a difficult conversation to have if you're an old white guy like me, Um, you know, as as something that I think Neil Hyman articulated, you know, it's very difficult. Um, I I was reading um, the article that you wrote with Barbara Bass and um, Lisa McElmore, etc., and you know, a couple of things s- struck me about that was that, um, as you just pointed out, which was the segue. It's it's not easy for anyone, uh, regardless of gender or ethnicity or whatever. You describe yourself as, you know, is society ready for an Indian, an Indian woman? Uh, uh, I, I don't think Americans view you as an Indian woman, because I don't think Americans look at people like that um they they define people in in my humble opinion by accent um interesting you know they you know it's that Sonia with the, I don't know how you spell her name Sonia um that's how they you know because you sound American whereas I sound foreign you know to people I, I do think that's which is a good thing you know it's 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 uh I you know not the indian bit but they will look at the woman bit for sure mm-hmm. um that's different it's um it's changed dramatically with um uh, obviously as it should have um etc um and you know the me too movement um uh, long overdue um etc etc um but it's quite challenging now uh, i have a friend who did a was asked to do a panel for <laughs> uh, for uh, uh, a webinar, a webinar, webinar, webinar for a uh, a society. He was just asked to do it, to chair it, I should say, and um, he didn't choose any of the speakers. But he suddenly yeah. started getting assaulted because all of the speakers were men, you know. And ah. and he said, "Hey, I didn't choose these people." <laughs> right. um, How do we balance that?
1: Well, I, I, you know, I think these things are meant to be hard. I I don't necessarily expect anybody to have the right answer today or for any particular situation. I I think it's this process that we're all going to go through, that we're going to learn. I think as an Indian woman, I have my biases. We all have it. There's no way we don't. And it's about the recognition of that and how as we uh, get into positions where we make decisions about other people, other people's lives, treatments, access, you know, whatever resources, um, you know, how how cognizant are we of those biases and can we catch ourselves enough to sort of um, recognize it and recognize the role it's playing in our decision making. Now, what you decide to do with that is a different thing. But it's a, it really is a social awakening. Um, And yeah, it might give us a little bit of analysis paralysis for a short period of time, you know, and, and I think it's, it's not, we're not always going to make the right decision. Right. I mean, necessarily choosing the person of color isn't always the right answer. I I don't think so. Right. We, we, we want to get to where Martin Luther King said, we want to be judged on our character, right. The content of our character and not about our color, our race. And and so we have to get to that point and we've had it one way for a long time. We're swinging the pendulum the other way. We're going to yeah. come back to the middle. And I think we're all going to be happy in that middle space, but it's going to take some time. And I know it's uncomfortable for you. It's uncomfortable for a lot of us, um, but I, I think we're going to get through that discomfort. I think we probably have to go through it to get to the, to the good side.
0: Yeah. And I, I'm not even sure I would, uh, I would, Describe my stance as discomfort. Uh, you know, the the, the person who evaluated, who examined me in my fellowship uh, in England in the eighties was a woman um, who uh, had been vice president of the college, and she was a formidable surgeon. I can tell you that. Um, and my uh, my first faculty colleague in London in the nineteen nineties became president of the Royal College of Surgeons. She was an orthopedic surgeon, close, close friend of mine who we sadly lost last year from pancreatic cancer, yeah. uh, Claire Marks. Now, Claire was interesting. She she was, uh, she was an orthopedic surgeon, uh, extremely smart, um, capable, lovely person, but was vehemently against any form of, and I, I'm, I'll use the term as a generic descriptor, but... Any form of positive discrimination. She she felt that what she did was, as you just said, uh, she was being judged on her skills and her character, mm-hmm. and that's what she wanted. She didn't want anybody to say uh, that's only because you know, etc., etc. And I, I think you're right. I mean, it's um, you know, everybody um, everybody has their own story. I mean, I may be a, an old white guy, but here I'm an immigrant um believe it or not you know and when I went to when I went to England from Ireland um you know they still had signs up saying no blacks dogs are Irish
1: Um, gosh
0: (laughs) I mean it was you know (laughs) it was kind of an interesting so you know everybody has their own story because the world the world Uh, the human, uh, the human uh, being, the human condition, I should say, struggles with different, uh, wherever you are, it struggles with different. Um, And I'm not sure that that's something that you can, uh, uh, as you say, it's not easy, you know, it's
1: not easy. And you know, when you wouldn't you love to be on the committee with all your friends, right? Sure. And that's where the yeah. word groupthink comes from. And yeah. so you're just like, you know, we got to let this outlier in this outlier is just going to like change the conversation. And Oh my gosh. But, you know, we all know when you reach a certain point in your life, you're going to be better for that difficult conversation. And I'll, I'll tell you, one of the things I realized was um, bias, if you, you will, or, or, You know, we talk about we want to have more, let's say, um, black men in medicine. Yeah. Right. And uh, how do we get there? Right. It's really hard to get them um, into our programs. Everybody everybody wants the few medical super great medical students that are out there. But why are there so few? Okay. so let's dial it back. Um, Let's go to the undergraduate. Why are there so few, you know, black men um, at the top colleges wanting to go to medical school? well, then let's dial it back to the high school. So I, you know, I served on our DEI committee at UCSD, and I realized how few um, Black students we had in general at the undergraduate campuses. And why was that the case? Well, because the best high school students went to the Harvards and the Yales. They sort of had their pick of the place, right? So now you got to dial it back. So one of the things I decided to do was sit on a board for one of the local high schools, because for me, I realized that if if, you know, when we talk about social determinants of health, you have to elevate the community, right? You can't just, for example, in our field, put a clinic in a disparate community and expect that everybody's going to be healthy after that. That's not how it works, right? You have to educate and you have to give jobs and you have to give benefits and you have to elevate the parents and the, and everybody to raise that community um, to where we want them to be. But I also, you know, in high school, it's like, who who becomes student body president? Who who gets to be the lead in that play? Who gets to do all of those special things that you get to put on your application that then gets you to those great schools? And who gets lit into those great high schools and into those AP programs and blah, blah, blah. And, and so you, you know, being in an affluent community and being someone who advocates for my kids and gets in there and, and, you know works the high school talks to the teachers. I realize, you know, I'm I'm creating, um I'm part of the reason, I'm part of the problem. Right. Yeah. I mean I'm trying to help my kids, but I understand that some kids don't have parents that do those things. And so going into that high school board made me want to, you know, work on the DEI at the high school level, but then you keep dialing it back and you you go back to to just the fundamental things that people need to be educated and, and we need to start this it's, process uh, very early in the next generation
0: it's it is interesting i don't know if you ever read or listen to malcolm gladwell um mm-hmm. and his where i mean i i like to listen to him because he has a very uh interesting voice and um, so i listen to him by audiobook etc he's originally from jamaica he's brought up in england but lives in toronto and, and he was commenting and this is extraordinarily summarized and paraphrased obviously that uh, in the US assimilation of african americans into society is heavily um based on shade of darkness um you know the lighter the easier it is to assimilate um and whereas in jamaica um it's to an extent the opposite um, really? because um, you know the, the, the American experience is much more of you know, the more you look like your neighbor, the better, easier it is to, to succeed. Um, whereas in Jamaica, um, the the lighter you are, the more it indicates that um, there was it came as a result of the slave owner um ah. buying uh buying a slave wife which they did openly it was done uh, differently so it's it's very interesting how you know these things um emerge uh, from a teleological standpoint or just so a very serious and deep conversation we're getting into so <laughs> so let me uh, it's
1: good stuff though right i mean we would have yeah. never had that 20 years ago like you say so i mean exactly. it's part of all our conversations these days and it's healthy it's good
0: so what are you good at?
1: Oh, I think I'm good at uh, talking to people, figuring out problems, problem solving. Um, I'm happiest when I'm doing that, when I, I find something that's wrong and I can fix it, kind of like being a surgeon, but in a, other aspects of my life as well. in my hospital work and the hospital administration work, I, I like uh, finding problems that I can fix. Make that help people.
0: So um, uh, there's a long way to go, of course. <laughs> um, but uh, how would you like to be remembered? Um, and and how do you think you will be remembered?
1: Gosh, yeah, you know, I think back to the things that really matter in life. I I would want to be. Um, remembered by my children as a great mom, as someone who supported them, helped them realize their dreams, um, helped raise them to be good people. Um, I would wanna be recognized by my friends as as a good, loyal friend, um, someone who would always be there for them, um, someone they can always pick up the phone and call, Um, honest, trustworthy. And in my, in my work, gosh, someone who just made people's lives better.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I think one of the things that people realize in your work is that um, six months after you've left, they definitely won't remember how you spelled your name.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that's okay. Right. I mean, you know, it's like that's, that's life, right. That's okay. And maybe you did your job if that's the case, right. Maybe you, I mean, you train a ton of people and, and you've, brought along a lot of really um the next generation of faculty into colorectal, john. and and I think that's the legacy, if you will, and I mean, no disrespect, but our children in colorectal, you you want them to carry on this specialty and and all of the curiosity about the science and the research and all of the important um protections for our specialty and and advocacy for patient care and you know, just the right people doing the right thing. And we want to maintain that. When you think what our forefathers did in our society so many, so many years ago when they formed it, how brilliant were they, right? They gave us a board, they established our um, society. We have an incredible endowment, which we can, um, you know, use to fund research and, and all different kinds of projects that we see today. Um, And colorectal is every bit a part of kind of all of the great new stuff that has happened in the last 50 years, right? Transanal surgery, robotic yeah. surgery, um screening, prevention. I mean, we've just done everything. Our our people are really amazing. And so you want that that to carry on into the future. Despite all the challenges in healthcare today, which is frightening. Yeah,
0: no, I mean I think it's I think it is interesting. I mean, I do think sometimes uh, you know, uh, one of my earliest bosses once said to me, "Listen, there's nobody in this room here called Mozart." Um, he said, "None no, of no, us are geniuses." He said, "So, you know, the only people that will remember you, um, are your patients and your students." And he said, "And that's as it should be." Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I think that's um, I think that's that's probably true. Uh, your Twitter profile describes you as a donut lover.
1: So Totally um, true. Yeah. I wish that weren't true. I just had like an amazing donut the other day and I was raving about it. What can I say? I have a problem. And I fully admit it.
0: <laughs> I was only just passing by that, but also a lifelong learner. I, I, I assume that's why you're doing an MBA.
1: Finish did the MBA. MBA. Did,
0: did it, I should say. Yeah,
1: finished uh, the MBA and um, I loved it. I love just thinking about something other than surgery, but something that would still apply to medicine. Oof, awesome.
0: What so? What do you do at, uh, when you're not uh, being incredibly impressive and important and operating and stuff like that? Uh, what are you? What are your hobbies?
1: I am hobbyless.
0: Hobbyless. <laughs> <laughs> You just so eat what? donuts you know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. when I have free time, do I focus on one thing? No, and that's probably my problem in life, right? I, I my hobbies have been my children. Um, I my hobbies have been my friends, my work, my um, projects that I my little projects that I like that are mostly work related. Um, gosh you know, making my husband happy, us thinking about, you know, our kids. It's just, I don't know. I, I wish I had a car hobby like you. I really do. I wish I could focus and then just have one thing that I really like. The one thing I just did recently, I went with my son to NYU. He's He's going to be a student in the fall. So we kind of took this weekend and went to New York, went to this donut bar That was incredible. Back to the
0: donuts.
1: Village, Donut Bar, anybody? It is so good. It had the best French cooler that I ever had in my life. But reconnected with a gallery um, that probably 20 years ago, talk about delayed satisfaction in medicine. But 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago, when I went with my husband to Paris, we didn't have any kids. And I found this artist that I loved. She was an American artist, but she was living in Paris. And they had her stuff in this little corner gallery near Notre Dame. And I couldn't afford it at the time. It was like 500 bucks. And my husband and I were like, oh, that's way too much. We're not doing that. And I've kind of followed her the last 20 years and just have never had a chance to go back. And every time I've gone back to Paris, maybe once or twice, I go to that gallery and the price keeps going up. And so this last time I told my son, this is the only gallery in the United States that has her stuff, so let's go. So we go there, and he and I both fell in love with the same kind of um, uh, etching, and we, I ended up buying it. So that's going to be my hobby. I'm going to be an art collector of Lynn Shaler Art, because I love her stuff.
0: And what does it cost now?
1: I, uh, do I have to say it. I haven't told my husband about it yet, but anyway, okay.
0: Well the good news is nobody'll ever see this podcast. <laughs> it's an early
1: birthday present. It wasn't that it wasn't that much. Was like three grand. It wasn't that bad, yeah. right? It's not bad.
0: Not bad in 20 yeah. years, you know.
1: Not at all. And but I it... ended up getting a small one first because the big ones are now ten thousand. <laughs> so you know it it's like what an idiot I am. If I had just invested that $500 back then, you know, I would have been further and I would have had something beautiful to look at in my house, right. That I very much love and enjoy everything about what she does. Um, and she reminds me a lot of Ed Hopper. And so I, I just, you know, I'm going to get into art. I'm going to do some other stuff, but I'm hobbyless at the moment.
0: Oh, wow. So, um, uh, we're close to finishing here. So I'm going to ask you uh, a series of Uh, this is the the cheesy sign-off bit, um, where (laughs) I ask you a series of quick questions.
1: Okay.
0: Um, You do not get time to think about these. Um, You have to just give me the answer. Okay. Um, There are no correct or incorrect answers, although I know the correct answer. Okay. Ready? (laughs) Sure. Okay, here we go. Uh, Beetles or stones? Beetles. McDonald's or Burger King? McDonald's. Uh, Mac or PC? PC. Cats or dogs? Talks. (laughs) Poker or Pepsi? Neither. Football or baseball?
1: (laughs) Oh, football.
0: Home or away? Home. Here we go. Thank you, Sonia. It's been great fun. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, I, I got to say that um, I I am so delighted to see everything that's happened to you. I think our society is in safe hands, and um, I look forward to seeing greater and greater things from you over the years to come. I really appreciate you. you spending the time today.
1: Thank you, John. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. So thank you for having me. All righty. All right, take care. Bye. (laughs) Bye Bye-bye.